Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This week, we welcome John Scanlon on the podcast. John is a car dealer and organizer of the Denver Card Shows. He came highly recommended to us as someone who's not only insanely knowledgeable about the pulse of the card market, but as someone who also has a very unique story to tell. And as always, this show is sponsored by Underdog Fantasy. Download the app and use the promo code UNDERWORLD to get $25 free bonus cash when you sign up. So with all that out of the way, let's jump right into this one because I think it was one of our best episodes yet. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Clear the Cash. I'm your host, Nate List. You can find me on Twitter at an outraged Jew. And as always, Mr. Jesse Bach is here. You can find him on Twitter at planet underscore fatness. And tonight we have a guest. Many of you may not know who this individual is. This is somebody that came to Jesse and I because he's got quite a story to tell on many different levels. Uh, his name is John Scanlon. And you can find him on Twitter at Denver Card Shows. John, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, boys. Thank you very much for having me on. You know, first time, long time, and uh, just glad to be a part of it. That's awesome, man. We, um, As I said, we've had two other people on here. We had an economist who ripped apart uh, the economy, of course, and NFTs, and we got a bunch of blowback. Then we had... Rob, who was just a big time uh, card enthusiast, major spender, had had that's the old price. Obviously, had quite a collection, and you are a different cut of cloth in many ways from these other two guys. I mean, did you have you heard our other interviews in the past? Oh yeah, um, I sat there shaking my head during that NFT interview, going, "That guy's fucking wrong. That guy's <laughs> wrong." And look where we are today. You know, Top Shot is a pile of steaming crap and. Yeah, uh, your, your guy was on. So I, I, I've been listening to you guys since day one. Um, it's great content. You know, I, I'm a Roto Underworld guy, you know, love you and Matt Kelly. So um, I'm just glad to be a part of this. And thank you very much for bringing me on, guys. I, I appreciate it. And, and to be honest with you, so our patron group, the Discord, they were pounding the table for you to come on. And interestingly enough, because I want to get Jesse's take here, I saw a photo of you and Jesse. And now correct me if I'm wrong, because we talked about this. Is Jesse not like six foot five with huge guns? Is I mean, what's going Bro, on here? Uh, so I'm telling you, with the planet fatness and the little bit of a round face on the on the screen here, I thought I was looking at, you know, one of my friendly doughboys, you know, but this guy comes up and, you know, I'm pretty sure he could have thrown me around and stuff. So yeah, look, that 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 Twitter handle is definitely a uh, you know, ironic. I I appreciate that both of you guys. I, I appreciate the, the the nice the nice comments um, about my physique. But 
Um, dude, John, honest to God, if if the patrons and if if the members of the Discord didn't vouch for you to come on this show, like I, I kind of hinted at the show that at the that you know, you know, we're we're gonna be we're gonna be needing more guests on the show. So um, if they didn't vouch for you, I would have. Um, so, dude, I like honest to God, you're like one of my favorite people in the hobby. Um, like, dude, you're just like as genuine as they come. Um, dude, like honestly, one of the kindest people, one of the kindest dealers I've ever, I've ever had the pleasure of dealing with or of, of even conversing with. So dude, on like honest to God, if, if people under on the Patreon or on the discord, if they didn't vouch for you, I honest to God would have. Well, I, I appreciate that Jesse. And, you know, like I said, I, I appreciate all the hard work you put into what you're doing here. You know, they're, they're, obviously what you do is a lot of research and a lot of time. So thank you for that. You know, I'm very, very big into building the card community and making it stronger and healthier for everybody. So I tend to gravitate towards the people that do that. And I think that you guys did a great job coming out of the gate. So I think this is where this is where my favorite part of this, this particular interview is going to come into play is that you have such a strong sense of community in the card world. And this is something that when I had left and come back, and I think you've got a story kind of similar to mine, but when Jesse and I had first started getting together and my interactions with people in this particular category of collectibles, of, of whatever, you know, of what's going on in the world today, like these are the nicest, most enthusiastic people. There are very few haters out there. I mean, and I told Jesse, I block like at least two people before this episode even started recording. So the, to run into somebody like you is so refreshing because I really do feel like you sort of embody what I've already felt is going on in the industry. Uh, thank you very much, Nate. You know, it, it's it's all about the community. You know, um, we'll touch on some of those stories that we had that, you know, could have run me off early and, you know, what we're trying to do to make sure that this doesn't happen to anybody else. Yeah, you're. You are, you're, you're our listening audience. I mean, you are like every person that listens to this show because many people have the same story that they collected in their youth. Uh, there was a big break. They came back. Is that your story? What's your background in the hobby? Yeah. Um, so at eight years old, I was a kid that was growing up in New Jersey. I love the New York Mets and if you don't know a lot of baseball history, the 1986 New York Mets may have been one of the better baseball teams ever assembled as far as playing baseball is concerned. Um, so I remember, you know, going down to the, the convenience store down the road from my house and buying packs in 1985 and 1986 tops only looking for the Mets cards. And, you know, that, that was where it began for me with the love of baseball and just the love of cards, you know, I discovered the cards and they were amazing. And then I found a Beckett one day and discovered they were worth something. And it all took off from there. You know, I, I had the typical break that a lot of guys do, you know, you get to that high school age, you start becoming interested in things other than baseball cards. So, um, you know, I had a layoff for a while, but I got back into it, um, about 10 years ago. Um, I think around 2010, 2011, and it's been, just an adventure ever since yeah it's it's really interesting all of us have that story of getting into it as kids and it was never about money right like it was never about no. oh i i hope i pull a a, a two thousand dollar card i hope i pull a ten thousand dollar card it was just as pure like 
you know, love for collecting. And, and that's again, sort of what we're, what we're seeing from you and especially you and Jesse, like you guys are such purists in the, in, in the terms of collecting, because you guys know you have things that are valuable, but you truly appreciate and understand like the history and depth and the nuances of new cards. So for you to have left, you know, or, or, or got back into it about, you said 10 years ago, roughly. Yeah. That's, that's yep. pretty amazing because I've got a really long gap and I only got back into it just recently. So when you got back into the hobby, kind of what brought you back? Um, you know, I was starting to settle down. I'm in my forties now. So I was getting to be in my mid thirties and a lot of the nostalgia was there. And I've always been a collector of things, you know, whether it was baseball cards or magic, the gathering, it's, I've always been a hobbyist in that way. So when the opportunity came in my thirties, I was, and, and this kind of brought me back into everything. Um, I was looking around on, on Craigslist and eBay, and I found a Mickey Mantle coin that they sold in the like sixties that was PSA graded. I ended up buying it locally off of Craigslist for like a hundred bucks. I got it home, put it up on eBay for 200 bucks and it sold in like two hours. And that was it. That, I mean, that I was hooked again. I was like, oh, man, I just spent 100 I just made 100 This is great. So, um, you know, and it was, it was a weird time in cards at that point, too, because, you know, you're talking 2011, 2012, Trout's coming of age, Bryce Harper. And, you know, that, that 2011 Topps update Mike Trout that's worth a small fortune these days, I remember getting back into it and buying them all I could for $15. Anyone I could for $15 just to sell it for $20.25. And then when they reached 30, I was like, all right, this is ridiculous. That's a base tops rookie. I'm out. You know, and <laughs> just, you know, obviously you see where how that one turned out for me. But um, just a lot of fun. Yeah, no, no regrets, obviously. Uh, I, everybody has that story. I don't know if Jesse has that story yet, but we know that Rob had that story. It's it, it's just, it's funny. It, it's uh, John, it's funny that you mentioned that when you were a kid, money had nothing to do with your love of the cards. And, it, and that was absolutely true for me. But it like if it had anything to do with the cards, it was like my favorite card when, when I was growing up that my brother passed on to me was an 85 tops 85 86 i can't remember tops traded berry bonds base just regular base non-tiffany of course um whoever has a tiffany they're pretty well off but um like i saw that card in the beckett magazine um in the beckett price guide it was worth like i don't even know like 20 bucks or something and that was like i treated that card like gold i'm like oh my god this might be worth like a hundred dollars one day like this is like yeah, so it it was just it it was it, like I love the purity of of being able to collect as a kid. And yes, I mean the uh, boxes of cards of course they cost money, but you don't think about the cards being worth thousands of dollars as a kid. Like you're just you're just so happy to pull one of your favorite players or somebody who is on like your fantasy team or something if you were old enough to play fantasy back. So it was it was just it was an incredible time in in, in collecting and um, when John, when you said, when you said that you came back in, in 2010, 2011, um, you said, you said it was mostly nostalgia purposes, but it, is that kind of, are those transactions that, that you were able to make, for example, like with that Mickey Mantle, uh, coin, is that something that kind of helped you stay in it? Or is it like maybe a combination of that and, and the nostalgia? I, the, so the nostalgia was there and I knew that, you know, one of the things I was looking forward to in the next few years was starting a family. So, um, 
you know, putting cards away for my kids was something that I wanted to do, you know, hopefully get them interested in it as well. But that to be able to make that quick flip, that that quick hundred dollars on that Mickey Mantle, that that definitely was the hook that, you know, jerked me right back in. And I, I, I was back for good. Now, I talk about purist as kids and that, that the money didn't matter. But as an adult, selling a card and profiting on a card feels incredible. And again, the, the, the idea that the sense of community and wanting to only do good is a huge part of, of the card thing, because you want sustained growth. You want more enthusiasm. There's a lot of younger people that are involved in this and you don't want anybody to get turned away. But at the same time, if you're selling a card and you're listing it high and somebody's willing to pay that price, I mean, do you ever turn it down out of honesty? Oh, I mean, we're, we're ultimately, especially at our age, we're here to do a quick flip. That's right. You know, we're here to make a couple bucks. Right. I mean, there's there's definitely things that I buy for just that hold purpose and that'll never go. But, you know, nah, it, it, that that dollar is ultimately what we're here for. And, you know, I've made the decision since that, you know, this is something that I'm doing, you know, to sustain my lifestyle. So. So you talk about using, you know, sales to sustain your lifestyle. Are you, so Jesse told me that you're, you're currently a, are you a dealer by definition or what, what is your, what is your position in sort of the world of cards? Yeah. Um, first and foremost, I deal. Um, and then second of all, my, my thing is the shows and promoting shows and local get togethers for the community. So, um, but first and foremost, I'm a dealer. I've got, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars in eBay sales every month, you know, that don't affect any of the trades and, you know, any of that stuff. But when I promote shows, I promote shows. Um, I don't set up at shows that I promote, you know, there I'm looking to make sure all the dealers and all the people that are coming through are having all their needs met. So, um, but, so I guess when you're looking at me, my primary position in the community would be the the promoter of the shows but i mean uh, it's definitely with the backbone of the dealing there so and and you're currently in denver as your twitter handle yep. would be i hope you don't move john i, I for your for the sake uh, of your social media names i hope you don't move it would yeah i was gonna say it wouldn't be a good look for for the twitter names now nah, for personal reasons once i got to colorado this is home awesome I'm never leaving yeah, it no beautiful state. Um, so, yeah, obviously, uh, one of the things that we wanted to talk to you about is sort of along the lines of this the conversation about community is are these card shows that you are building? So, how many card shows have you organized or promoted so far? Um, so, I probably before the pandemic had promoted about twenty five to thirty shows. Um, they were smaller in size. We were about 30 to 40 tables at the shows. Nothing nothing really big. Um, but post-COVID, we were presented with an opportunity when all of the, and I'm not trying to get political, but they moved the All-Star game away from Atlanta in Major League Baseball yep. All-Star for political reasons. And once that happened, with the loosening COVID restrictions, we were given an opportunity here to really put something on special for the state. Now, I, I've been a part of this community for a long time, and I know that this area was ready to be put on the map as somewhere, hey, this is a great area for cards. There's a ton of great guys here, a great, great community. So um, we put on the big show. Um, we filled up, I think, 185 out of 200 tables. And yeah, for, for a first time show, 
Um, we couldn't have asked for more. We had about 2,000 people come through as, um, as just people walking around. And I know that's not anything compared to the numbers that we just saw with the National. But um, we were very, very proud of what we built. And everybody had a great time. John, honest to God, with with the the show that I went to in Philly, I was kind of I was hyping that show up a little bit on one of the episodes that Nate and I recorded. Um, I don't even know if we had tables at the, it was it was a big show. Um, I mean, it took me it took me probably a good four hours just to go through every section of the show. But 185 tables and and then the work I can't imagine the work that it takes into organizing that that must be that's like gargantuan right there. So. Um, like what exactly went into from your end in terms of like organizing it? Um, and uh, I mean, honest to God, like I, I would, it, it was a shame that I wasn't able to make the, the show in Denver, even though I talked about it on the show, but I mean, I would love to make, you know, future shows, uh, over, over there in Colorado. Well, I mean, as for what went into it, it was, we had a small amount of time. You know, we, I think we put together this show in about 75 to 85 days. So, um, finding a venue, getting the word out, you know, I, everybody knows that the Dallas shows right now are the, the big thing, you know, other than the national, because they happen fairly regularly. So I made a point to go down to the Dallas show a couple months ago. I spoke with every dealer out there, let them know what we were doing, what we were building. I, I, I mean, I shook hands, kissed babies, did all the things out in the crowd that, that weekend, you know, to, to make sure that people were at least saying, Hey, Denver's got something going on. And, you know, a couple of my friends are dealers that kind of traveled to all those shows. They were in Wisconsin for the Dell show there. They do the Dallas shows all the time and stuff. So, um, they, they were out helping put the word out and letting them know what we were trying to build and what we were trying to do. And it, it all came together. Great. So obviously you had a ton of success with this first show with filling 185 out of 200 tables. I don't think you're going to have a problem filling 200 tables um, moving forward if if the show if the show will you know continue and, and still be a thing. So I wanted to I wanted to see if if there will be um, if there might be future shows out in Denver moving forward that you might organize. Oh, a hundred percent. First of all, now that I'm back and have a little bit of downtime from my show and the national. Um, we're going to start working on some of our more localized shows. Um, and based on the um, response that we had for our big show, I'm actually planning on going from our localized shows, which were about 30 to 40 tables. We're going to try to expand that to about 70, the availability of 75 to 100 tables. Um, but as for an all cards weekend, another one of those massive shows, um, we're going to start doing those twice a year at the beginning of next year. Um, the venue that we were in held the 200 tables like a champion but we only rented a third of the room so we're actually able to expand that to somewhere around seven to eight hundred tables not saying that we can get there immediately but we're able to grow into something there um and and that's going to be the focus you know um and i know things came together late i sent you guys an invite to come out um we're going to put some Next time, too, we're going to put some, uh, we're going to use one of our booths. We're going to put a bunch of podcast equipment in there, and we want to have you guys come down and do a live show. You know, Nate, I know it won't be in the middle of July, that busy time for you. So it's unfortunate. I, all this stuff, I, we planned this big family trip, and 
Unfortunately, it fell right on it because I would have loved to have gone to the national, which we're definitely going to get to. Um, so many people, I mean, I know from our discord, I know people that I know personally attended it. Um, you know, I asked Jesse, I was like, man, did you, did anybody hit you up? Did you feel like a superstar? What was going on out there? And uh, Jesse said that there was a lot of people around you, John, and that, you, you know, you had uh, quite a bit of traction going on out there as well. Um, but as far as these Denver shows, when, so when is the next show that you're organizing going to take place? Will there be one in 2021? Um, there will be the smaller, more regionalized shows, our localized shows. Yes, for sure. Um, and when, once we have a venue locked down, we'll make the announcement as to when and where those are going to be. Um, but for our big national level, regional level shows, we're going to be aiming for April of next year to get that up and running. Um, I, I could get one together by October, but I'd be throwing myself right back into the whole getting a show organized in 75 days. And man, honestly, I burnt myself out last time. By the time the show was done, I slept for a day and a half. Yeah. Well, you clearly, you have the recipe, right? I mean, you filled a, a ton of tables. I mean, it's, and I, I think that as things open back up, hopefully if that's the direction things trend and, and the enthusiasm in this market, I, I think Jesse's right. I don't think you're going to have any problem filling a multitude of tables. And certainly we will have you back on um, as we approach that so we can pump it. I know for a lot of people, when it's an air quote regional show and not local, it requires travel plans for people. I know for Jesse, it would have yeah. been travel plans for me. It would have been travel plans. So for many of our listeners, it would be the same thing. So hopefully uh, when you know in advance, we can advertise it, get you on, talk about it in advance so people can set up a trip because I know that there are so many people that would love to make it to an event like this, especially with somebody as enthusiastic as you, but for the person that's trying to set up local card shows kind of in their area, because it doesn't exist yet. What advice would you give them? Like what's the first step to really doing something like this? Uh, the, the first step, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, Nate, the first step is getting to know the people in your community, your local community out there. Um, that's, I really feel like as a promoter, I spend 75% of my time building relationships, you know, making sure that, you know, needs are met of the dealers locally. Like the, for my localized shows, the 30, 40 table shows that we did for two years, I bought every dealer lunch at Chick-fil-A. We, they do those little box lunches and like, because a lot of these guys don't have a chance to get away from the table during a day. You know, they, they don't have that opportunity. So, I mean, as dumb as it sounds, that little, that little box is just so much goodwill in there, you know, that everybody loves a Chick-fil-A, but like, you know, when you're stuck, that, that just goes a long way. So if you're looking to start a show in your area and you want to promote things, make sure you're building those relationships. Make sure you're doing the little things that make everybody in that community want to do the same thing for you. Because there was a promoter in Denver that was kind of sandpaper before I started taking things over. And, you know, it was rough. He was trying to go to smaller places that were cheaper and like, he, he wasn't listening to the people around him who were saying, you know, hey, we need bigger space. We need more room if we're going to grow anything. And, you know, that that's just what you have to do. You have to build relationships and make sure that you're listening to the people that are out there coming. You know, you need to listen to the people that are coming in the door as customers. You need to listen to the vendors. You know, it's all uh, making sure that relationships and needs are met. That's that's pretty much all promoting shows is. 
John, I'm going to take a page out of your book from what you just said about uh, building relationships and just being a kind human being to other people. Um, there was one, when I was at the national, there was one dealer, a nice guy. I was able to, to talk with him for, for maybe a day or two. Um, he had a, he had a Randy Moss, um, a Randy Moss card that I was, I, I was really eyeing down. And the second, the second day when I came to his table, I, he was just, I think he just, he made, he made like a $7,000 deal with, with, uh, with, with somebody, with one of the buyers that was walking around the show. And, um, and then all of a sudden I saw him, I'm like, okay, all right, this is my time to, to bounce and finally start negotiating. And then I just see him pick up a hot dog and he's just like exhausted. I'm like, you know what? I can talk to you tomorrow. It's fine. I'm sure people would appreciate that. And and honestly, I, I feel like it pays to be a good person at, at, at these types of shows and just to kind of game, gain relationships and build relationships with people. Yeah, absolutely. It's all about the relationships. You never know. You could be handing that bottle of water to someone who wasn't able to get away from his table for two hours. And, you know, that you never know what kind of deal he would give you just because you have that nice gesture. I mean, it's it's all 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 about relationships. I I think that's I think that about life. But, you know, it's especially apparent in our community. I think that that's why your shows are probably growing at the rate that they are, though, too, John, because. Word of mouth, people speak highly of you. They know that you're a guy that's putting in the work. And it's one of those things. All of us have worked at a job where we had a boss that would tell us to do something that they would never do themselves or they didn't put in as much work as you. And it it erodes them as a leader. We don't look at them the same. We we don't want to go into the trenches on behalf of them because they haven't earned our full respect. But somebody like you that's recognizing that these people – are doing something that they love, but they can't get away. You're, you're bringing them food. It, that doesn't sound dumb to me. I know you said that it sounds stupid or dumb. Not at all. Like it, it isn't, even if it's Chick-fil-A, it's not Ruth Chris steakhouse. It's still like this little, this, this little gesture that to these people means a lot. It's the reason that when you call them up uh, prior to April next year and say, Hey guys, I'm doing a show. They're going to go, John, I'm there. I want a table. I, I'm going to be, and I'm bringing a buddy. Cause I told him he's going to be there too. And that's how this grows. This is how it's like a brush fire and it just takes off because you get really great people that not only help increase the enthusiasm of people, but they help, you know, in in a sense, just grow this community greater. And it's getting huge. I mean, I get Jesse as well, and you will probably after this, we get messages all the time. I mean, every day I, I get numerous messages from people with questions related to cards from accounts that I've never seen before. And that to me is just, there's at some point in their day, last week, a month ago, six months ago, there was something that was said or some conversation they heard or a topic that just sparked that little enthusiasm and they were going just like when you sold that card, made a hundred dollars, you were going again. And these moments, these things that you're doing, I think are a huge benefit to the community. And I, and I'm sure you're going to do even bigger things in the future, but tell me this guys, I wasn't there. I couldn't see it. A lot of people didn't see the national massive event. Walk us through what, what it was like you know, when you walked into the room, what did you see? How many tables were there? Like how, how significant was this event? All right. So I got there on Tuesday to set up on Wednesday morning. Um, Wednesday morning was dealer set up and early preview day. Um, and right off the bat, before it was even open to the public, there were tons of dealers walking around trying to see what kind of deals were out there, what they could find, what they were looking for. And I, I thought the foot traffic before was borderline incredible. Um, then four o'clock happened and they opened the doors. Um, and as I mentioned, 
we were the last booth next to PSA's corner. Like, we could see PSA's signage right where we were, and there was a stampede of people that were running to get to PSA to be what was an eventually a 200-yard line, long line. Uh, and from what I understand, I don't know for sure, but PSA sold 80% of the entire allotment of grading cards that they could have in the first four hours that they were open from 4 to 8 p.m. that night. I, I have no idea what those numbers were, but it was absolute madness. Um, and, and as for the show, again, I mentioned I've never been on the dealer side of the table at this show. From the time the show opened on Wednesday until the time the show closed at 5 p.m. on Sunday, there was a line of people everywhere. There were people in front of all the tables. Now, I've done so much promoting of shows in the last few years, I actually hate being tied down to a table. You know, I'm more, I'm used to walking around the room, again, shaking hands, making sure everybody's got what they need. And, you know, so to be tied down to a table like that was, was a new experience for me, but I didn't have the opportunity to do anything else because there were people there the entire time. Wow. And so, because, I mean, you, you would know by the numbers, your show did 180 tables. How many tables do you estimate were at the national? probably 1200 1300 sounds about yeah i was gonna say probably somewhere but by the by booth numbers it's probably somewhere around thir- like 1250 to 1300 yeah yeah like i know all the numbers don't go all the way up but like it's it's absurd like i it's funny because they've got a big map that was in a magazine of the whole layout of the place and you know there was the program for the national so i get home and i'm showing my girlfriend and I was like, hey, baby, this is the national. She's like, oh, wow, that's neat. And then I took my finger and I circled like a little island. And I was like, that's the show we just did. And she was like, oh, my God. <laughs> so, yeah, perspective. I mean, that that's really what it comes down to in that case. And so here's a question, because some of my buddies who got into cards because of the show that Jesse and I are doing, they were texting me. They're like, you got to go to the national PSA is doing grading on the spot. Is that true? Is that what they were doing there? Yeah, they were doing it on the spot. Um, as a matter of fact, like you could hear every couple of seconds, there was this little high pitched kind of machinery noise. And a- after a couple of days, we'd put it together. They, that was their slab machine, their sonic sealing machine every time. And then, you know, we started thinking about it. It's like the minimum that they're grading there is $250. And we're hearing that sound every couple of seconds, you know? So like PSA, just, they, they were walking away with bags, bags. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so incredible. I mean, and they are still, they're still the Kings of the castle right now. And here they go. They show up at the national and obviously they're making a ton of money there. I mean, Jesse, you weren't tied to a table, I mean, what, what was your experience walking in? Was it just, were, were you bumping into people all over the place? Was there nowhere to go? Uh, f- all right. So Wednesday, um, Wednesday was the first day I was there. So I, I, I spent at least some amount of time between Wednesday, like every day, Wednesday through Sunday. Um, so I, I would be there pretty much for at least like four hours a day each day. Um, 
I, dra- I, I mentioned on the last show, I dragged my girlfriend along. She was a really good sport about it, but kind of like the the implicit agreement between us was like, all right, first half of the day, as soon as we get up, get, get out of bed, get ready, go to the show. First half of the day is cards. Second half of the day is Chicago. So I thought that was a pretty fair trade. So I, I was only there for probably about like four hours a day um, outside of maybe a day or two. And um it was just Wednesday. Wednesday was tame. Um, I tried to be pretty. Um, I, I tried to be pretty disciplined with my spending, just because you know you don't want to, you know you don't want to like you know blow your wad in, in the first day and then just kind of walk around with empty pockets. So, um, not not the wisest thing to do. But there were some cards that that I that I had my eyes on after the first day. But Nate, honest to God, that that show was so big that I there was one corner of the show that probably had maybe around like 200 tables or so that I didn't even get to. It was, it was just that big. And I regret not getting, not getting there just cause I know they had insane gold LeBrons and Kobe's and uh, just nineties uh, inserts that I can only dream of. So, I mean, that show, it was, uh, I can, I can think back to, thir- I can think back to Thursday specifically. It's, it just seemed like Thursday, John, I don't know about you, but Thursday, like, I, I think I just I ran into the Panini lines, I ran into the Tops lines, and there were just so many dealers in that area that had so many cards that I wanted to look at, but they were just the people that were in those lines. They just I mean I couldn't even get around them just to get to the tables. So that part was a little bit of tough. If you stay on the busier days of the show, if you stay away from the middle of the show, where like that's usually where the the promotional booths are. That's where like the bigger companies like Panini Tops. Um, the auction houses are, um, if you kind of stay, if you kind of stay around like the corners of the, the corners and edges of the show, which is ironically where John was, um, you'll, you'll stay pretty, you'll, you'll stay pretty good, um, in, in terms of, you know, being able to, uh, get away from like the bigger, the bigger crowds and, um, you know, actually being able to breathe. So, um, but the show, it, it was incredible. Like the energy was just insane. People have been talking about, how the, the how the hobby's been on a on a downslope and a, a downward project trajectory for the last couple of months just because of the MJ Fleer and 86 MJ Fleer PSA 10 prices going down but um and and a bunch of other modern cards going down in price but that the energy of that show and just the the amount of people that were legitimately looking to transact was like really something special. I Nay, I'm not kidding. I like John, I don't know if you know an exact number off the top of your head or not, but I heard there might have been like on like as much as a hundred thousand people that walked through the doors over the course of the five days. And honest I, I, like at first it shocked me, but I'm knowing how Thursday and Friday were of the show, I could honestly believe it. Yeah, um the only thing I've heard and it was all speculative was that on that first of all they had sold about a hundred thousand tickets for sure and that on saturday alone there were over forty thousand people through so wow just it it was a zoo i i've been on the other side of the tables and never had a problem getting around never had a problem you know navigating the place i couldn't have imagined having to go around and get around this show so we've got Jesse's perspective. He's a guy at the show going table to table, and he says he couldn't even get to uh, the equivalent of the Denver card show worth of tables. And then here you are. You're on the other side of the table dealing. What's th- what's that like? What, what Were there people just constantly at your table? Yes, there were constantly people at the table. If we had a break, um, so so the booths they have there are eight by or 10 by 15. 
and I shared the booth with two of my good friends from out in Denver. So we each had one table, and there was never a period during the show where there wasn't someone in front of one of the three of our tables. And, um, you know, I it, it was absolute insanity. Insanity the whole time. Um, we'd have occasionally breaks where there wouldn't be anybody in front of my table, so I'd be able to sit down or grab a quick snack or something. But, you know, my buddy Adam's table would be full, you know. So, and, you know, just in, in the sense, you know, you also you don't want to sit it down immediately you want to make sure adam's got the support that he needs when he's back there and you know jay who was at the other end of the booth he's you never know when he's going to need a little help so it was just insanity the whole time i can't i can't imagine like the whole men it's it's not just like a physical workout it's like a mental workout too just even like i every, every dealer has their own strategy of pricing their items. Some people use a sticker gun. Some people have, you know, a little black book and they just, you know, keep everything in there, keep all their transactions in there. Um, but some people just kind of have it right off the top of their noggin and, or, or maybe they'll see something change in price as the show goes on and just have eBay ready to go on their phone and their prices change along with the rest of the market or the market th that the show itself is creating. So, I can't imagine, in addition to the being physically drained, just like the mental exercise that it is to be a dealer so, at the show. Keeping up with it was exhausting. Uh, I was not prepared for this in the least. Um, I thought I was, you know, with, especially with the experience that I have with shows specifically, but nothing I've done prepared, could have prepared me for just how wild this whole week was. I think Jesse, he, he makes a great point, just the... The idea that you, you would need to do just so much mental gymnastics to like keep track of prices and this guy asking this or even worse, if somebody comes up, it's not just, hey, how much do you want for that? It's, hey, do you want to make a trade? This is what I have. And now taking into consideration what it is that they have, if it's on slab, what the quality is, what it goes for. Like I imagine that all of that is just like Jesse said, exhausting. No, hundred percent. Um, I, I'd planned to go out to some of the trade nights that were going on out there. I'd planned to go out to a few nice dinners with some friends while I was there. The only thing I did after those shows were over was I went to the hotel room. I put on some Netflix and I went to sleep. Um, you know, I, and it was crazy. I, I got an Apple watch that keeps track of the steps, you know, and I'm not sure how, but in that 10 by 15 area, somehow I'm still putting in. 15,000 steps like what how does that happen in a space that small you know john you you and i you and i had a little side conversation yeah. at the show one of the days that I, I visited your table um you were saying that uh you had basically like a whole a whole case worth of a certain sports cards that you you were just able to turn over in like a day's time did you did you feel like at while you were at the show that you were you almost felt like you needed to race to buy more inventory just to turn it around in that time frame um yeah so there were two things that really surprised me about the show and you know give, give your give our listeners here a little tips as to where things may be moving um I, I sold a lot of baseball. I sold a lot of basketball. I sold a lot of football. But three things at the show really stood out. Um, one was UFC. Um, I started out with like a row in a case of UFC cards. <laughs> sold them. 
Okay. Filled it up with two rows, sold them, filled it up with three rows. And I'm, you know, so I'm buying as much UFC stuff out there as is coming up to my table as I can just to fill this demand. And, um, but, but UFC and foot, uh, soccer, the, the worldwide football were just, in high, high, high demand, especially with the younger demographic that's really been taking a hold. A lot of these sneaker flippers and and that kind of group really seem to be attracted to soccer and um, UFC. That is that is super interesting. See, okay, this is the nugget that we needed. This right here, this is what just put it over the top. We had a guy that's a patron. And uh, maybe once he hears this, he'll drop it in the Discord. He had a Hoist Gracie one-of-one. I think it was a Prism Auto. And uh, he was like, what do you think this is worth? And I'm like, dude, yeah. I'm like, it's obviously, it's huge. Hoist is, you know, I've got a background in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Like, he is, as far as UFC is concerned, like, that guy is uh, the beginning of everything, right? Just Prism as a whole. I, I was doing collecting when people didn't care about Prism. You know, 13-14 prism in basketball was not a thing. People didn't collect it. It wasn't a desirable product. So even for me, when these new prism products come out and, you know, things are selling for hundreds of dollars for base cards, that's just an arena I'm not used to right now. Now, I'm trying to adapt because, you know, you constantly have to adapt in this market to make sure that you're staying on top of things. But it... I don't really know. I know that that card is huge. I know UFC and soccer both have that worldwide market to them, you know, where there's people in all kinds of countries that want to collect this, not just here in America. So I I think there's some sort of correlation there. But those big cards coming out of these new products, like I'm used to Prism being a $200 or $300 box. I'm not used to Prism coming out at, you know, $900 like the UFC one did. Right. The, okay, now, John, I'm not good at math here, but you said three things. Now, we said soccer, we said MMA. Was there one more thing? Yeah. Um, kaboom. I moved so much kaboom this weekend, it was bananas. Um, I, first of all, in, in my background, kaboom are my favorite card. I collect them. Uh, my handle on Instagram is kaboom underscore collector. Uh, they're my favorite. The, the visual appeal on some of those cards is just crazy. But the they moved at rates I wasn't expecting. I, I sold a gold Russell Wilson for nearly four thousand um, dollars. Like, yeah, and, and and people were buying everything. I sold a Bryce Love kaboom. You know, I, I didn't even know people still cared about Bryce Love, but you know, I think that Kaboom just adds a little bit of, a little bit of allure. But they're they're beautiful cards if you've never held one in hand. But they were flying at the show. Honest to God, doesn't it seem like all right? So let's say a player is completely irrelevant. I'm I'm talking like a a a, a shade of a tier above Darius Geis level irrelevant right now. Bryce Love. That's there you go. It isn't isn't like a kaboom or a gold kaboom like probably their most sought after card right now, especially if it's a modern player. Yes, a hundred percent. And you know, you'd mentioned my my grail in my collections, my Tatum kaboom rookie gold. Uh, I 
I keep saying it. I've been saying it since those gold kabooms came out that that card will go down as probably the third or fourth most desirable Jason Tatum non-one-of-one rookie card. Um, I believe his Prism Gold and his Prism Gold Auto will probably be the only two that will consistently outpace the Kaboom once, you know, his career set and once, you know, we've gone through the full evolution of these. Um, I, I sat back for years and said, you know, guys, Kaboom is going to be the 2015 version of the PMGs from 1996, you know, and... I've been buying them and commercing in them since 2016, 2017, and it's been a fun ride for sure. But they are moving like crazy. I think people really like that superhero crossover. Yeah, they're they're incredible looking cards. I know Ethan, obviously, you know who that is in the Discord at the dude. He um he he's all about them. We always text back and forth, and it just seems like those cards have really caught fire. And so it makes a lot of sense what you're saying right now that. They were one of the most popular cards, although they're very expensive, right? To get one of these premier players, you're talking about base cards going for hundreds of dollars. I mean, kabooms are, for the people that haven't looked before, when you get on eBay after this episode and you go look them up, I mean, you're going to be shocked when you see some of the really nice ones out there. Um, but I know Jesse is a big fan of kaboom as well. I mean, Jesse, is that your belief as well that these cards in the future are going to be considered, you know, one of the most collectible cards? of its era i think i think in terms of of the panini era um 2012 prism golds are gonna they are literally going to be gold or worth more than gold itself um it's like they're just gonna be they're gonna go down as as probably the as close as you can get to um to the pmg but interestingly enough i i didn't give maybe when we, we we thought of this question beforehand i didn't give it quite as much thought as i should have the pmg is actually not an insert it's a parallel from from the skybox metal universe um metal universe set so uh in in terms like kaboom's an insert so we have to think of a, a 90s insert that this would be just as sought after and and if you if we're thinking insert, it's like it's not even a question that Kaboom is going to be the most valuable insert and most sought after insert in the Panini era. I mean, I don't know how much longer Panini is going to have the exclusive licensing rights for football and basketball, but um, people are. I mean, people years from now, decades from now, we're. I'm already seeing the next era of collectors being um, like coming coming into the hobby right now. And this is what they're growing up on. Just like we grew up on cards in the 90s and the early 2000s um, when when Upper Deck and Tops ruled the hobby. And then, in the, like I said, in the 90s when it was Skybox and Fleer. So um, I'm, I'm thinking kids right now who will come back to maybe step away for a couple of years and then come back to it when they're in their 20s or 30s or 40s. They're going to be looking at these that they're going to be looking at these types of like cards that look like literally comic book cards that's literally the description of kaboom so in terms of in, the pmg might not be um the comparison that i'm looking for if, if we're just getting technical just because it's we're talking parallel versus insert which it's a whole side conversation but whatever the most sought after 90s insert is and trust me 90s inserts are worth plenty of money right now that's the trajectory that kabooms are looking at the the kaboom is has taken off and i'm pretty sure after this episode we're gonna have a lot of listeners that are gonna be 
sifting through eBay, looking for them. And, and like you guys mentioned, Bryce Love is selling. So if these people that are just maybe looking to make a couple bucks, I mean, they could literally be looking for any number of these cards, right? And still be able to turn a profit. Absolutely. And I tell anybody that'll listen, you know, hey, I want to buy this Justin Herbert Kaboom. Okay, well, here's the deal. If you believe in that player, you cannot go wrong with buying a kaboom of them. Um, because even if the player were to somehow break his leg, never play again, the kaboom is still going to have collectability. You know, a lot of that player's cards are just going to fall right through the right through the bottom and hit the floor where those kabooms are still going to hold a little bit of allure. You know what's crazy is that... Um... I've I've talked to collectors uh, like of '90s football and '90s basketball, and um, a, a lot of these guys that, that I've spoken to, they don't really collect modern modern day players. Um, they just you know they've kind of set their sights on one guy, and that's it. Like I, I've talked to a couple of Jerry Rice collectors. I've been getting a little bit into Jerry Rice collecting myself. Um, it's a pricey range, but um, what's what's fascinating about Kabooms is that's that's like the one. There you go. That's it. That's that's like that's literally the one insert in the Panini era that these collectors of the 90s are actually looking for. Jerry Rice hasn't played football for how like 20 years, almost 20 years. Like they're looking at his kaboom. And and the and honest to god, those those guys like if you look at um like 2020 Peyton Manning kaboom cards or Brett Favre or whoever like insert player X who's been retired for 5 plus years their kabooms are still sought after. I mean, they, they might not go as much as a modern day player, um, but they're still like co collectors, people who are going to be in this hobby through thick and thin are wanting these cards. So that really goes to that. That says so much about the insert, probably more than I ever could. So I, I want to ask you a question because I'm a bit naive about what takes place as sort of a dealer at these tables, but with as many people that are kind of coming and going at your table, is theft ever an issue at these shows? Uh, sh theft is definitely very prevalent at the shows. Um, I think that I may have been fortunate enough not to have any theft at the show, but my primarily I know that that's the case because all of my cards were in display cases. And I think a lot of the people that are going around trying to steal or like looking through the boxes that you put up your prices marked box and stuff like that, because those tend to be easy targets. You can get things that people aren't paying attention. I, I think there was video that was released of somebody who had a backpack. They caught him stealing and then they empty his backpack and he had hundreds and hundreds of cards, which he had to have been going through those, you know, 50, 50 cent boxes or whatever it is stealing from off the table. Yeah, it, there's there's always people trying to take advantage, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I guess that kind of segues into our, our next point there. Um, I When my son was born in 2015, I decided that um, it was time to put an heirloom card away for him. So I started doing a little bit of research and decided I was going to buy a Michael Jordan card and put it away. Um, I bought a PSA nine Michael Jordan card, went to buy it. The serial number checked out. Um, you know, it was 2015. So I was using a barcode barcode scanner and scanned the barcode and it matched the same number that was on the flip, which was confirmed through the PSA site. It was a Jordan nine. Um, so I put that card away for my son. Um, a few, few months later, the guy who sold it to me reached out and was like, Hey, just wondering, you know, are you happy with the Jordan? And, 
you know, yeah, the, very much. Thank you. Heirloom card, just what I wanted. And he's like, well, if you were really happy with that Jordan, I got a Reggie Jackson you should come take a look at. So I go to look at the Reggie Jackson, and really, really, really long story short, I sent it to Probstein to have him auction it off. And he contact Rick reached out to me and let me know, John, I'm not sure what's going on, but the Reggie Jackson that's inside of your PSA 9 case here has been trimmed. Um, I took it to my friend at SGC down the road. We confirmed it. And, you know, I, I can't help you and sell this card because I, I can't put my reputation on the line, which I understood completely. So um, long, long, again, long story short, uh, both of those cards were fakes. They were fake PSA slabs. They were just complete and utter trash. Um, I reached out to PSA at the time. I was told if the serial numbers matched, then it was real. I didn't have a problem. Um I then tried reaching out to Joe Orlando on Twitter, who was the president of PSA at the time. Joe Orlando blocked me. Like, blocked me. Didn't say, hey, I can't talk about this. Didn't He just blocked me. So I was sour on PSA for a long time. But, I mean, ultimately the problem is for years and years and years there have been fake PSA slabs that have been just decimating the market. Um and I ended up getting in touch with a FBI agent in 2018 or 2016 who was investigating this at the time. Um, interviewed with him, you know, he thanked me for the information and I never really heard from him again. And wouldn't you know, at the National, I was standing at my booth and a couple guys come up, show me some badges, and it's the FBI agents. Now, we're talking about five, six years later, haven't heard anything from these guys. And they're like, hey, we want to talk to you about those fake PSA slabs. So go over and start talking to the guys. And they asked if I would remember the person who sold them to me. And, I, you know, he was very distinctive. And I was like, yeah, I, I'm positive that, you know, I could pull them out of a lineup, essentially. And the, the guy's like, okay, good. So pulls out his phone, did did a lineup right there. And, you know, I picked the guy who I believe was the guy out of the lineup, and they seemed very satisfied with that answer, and apparently they're trying to get him right now. But um, there's fake PSA slabs out there. you got to be careful what you're buying and who you're buying it from because if you go – I th again, this was when I was still kind of getting my feet wet back and everything, and I was just looking for a deal, so I looked on Craigslist, and that's how I met up with the guy. So, you know, if you're not careful where you're buying, I paid cash, you know, so I was completely at a loss in all of this. Um, and, and it's part of the reason that I started dealing was because I wanted to make sure that people in Denver could come and buy from somebody that they could trust. They could buy from somebody that if they come back a, a month later and they say, John, man, I sent this card to PSA and they said it's fake. They know that I'm going to make right by them. You know, I'm going to make them whole again. So it, it was part of what pushed me into where I am today. But yeah, th there's there's a lot of lot of scamming and a lot of things that you got to be real careful with your money out there. John, I'm sure. Well, as a quick side note, Nate, I'm sure has been trying to reach out to to Joe Orlando. He probably still <laughs> DMs him. 
every day without success. He's probably on his he's probably on a trajectory to get blocked as well. That's the funniest thing, man. It's <laughs> so funny. Literally, I think it was last week or the week before that I went on my I went on my rant about how I've hit up Joe Orlando so many times on Twitter. <laughs> email every every way you could possibly imagine to get a hold of him fucking skywriter and i cannot get a hold of him so nah uh, you might need to send up smoke signals to california or something like i I don't know what he responds to but i told him i was scammed and i got blocked so i'm not the biggest joe orlando fan he's he's got a little bit of time on his hands now i'm sure without without being uh president of psa but um it's it's super honorable that you actually did you did you kind of went above and beyond um not just accepting that what what was transacted was a trimmed card in a in a faked PSA slab but you actually tried to go to PSA themselves just to just to kind of you know at least at least um you know make the issue known to them that Dude, your 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 slabs are being faked. Like that that is a thing that is going on with PSA slabs. And I I know Nate and I have have talked on previous shows about BGS and how they're, you know, they're they're getting shit on left and right with with uh, their slabs being faked and and with their lack of response to them. But um, but that's that's a whole other discussion. But you you really went out above and beyond to try to at least make this issue known and make other people aware of it to the point where the FBI got in touch with you. Um, it's, it's really admirable where like, I'm, I'm sure there, I, John, you've, you've told me a story or two about, uh, about other individuals who, um, didn't quite go that route. And instead of, instead of getting to the bottom of it and making sure that what they had was fake and, um, having other people know about it, that some people just turn turn the other turn the other way and just you know sell it to the next guy. I'll tell you what, I don't know what what you guys know about Vegas Dave, but there's a very publicized case where Vegas Dave got one of these fake PSA tens, and he just literally passed it on to the next asshole. Like, and I feel like that's such a scummy move for that guy because that guy's made of fucking money. Like, dude, take your L and get on with your life. Like. That is a real scumbag move. I'm a paycheck to paycheck guy. Before I started into cards, I was I humped 15 years in restaurants. You know, I if I can take that L, bro, you can take that L. Man, you're you're playing clear the cash whack a mole right now. Joe Orlando, Vegas Dave. <laughs> Let's uh, you, go. We're, <laughs> we're, I'm waiting for the trifecta. I'm waiting trifecta. for that one last name yeah. that hasn't been called out yet. So here's a question. Obviously, my my depth in the hobby is not like you guys. It's part of the cog in the machine of this show. Jesse's the expert, and I'm going through my my journey to become a card expert like you guys yourselves. But when you use the phrase trimmed, you said the card was trimmed. What does that imply? Um, so what that implies is that they the card was had a little edge damage or something and they just take a little shave and they shave a little piece of that edge off and that just kind of makes it look smooth and clean again not like it was cut at the opichi factory in the 90s you know um so it's just a way to alter the card to make it look better to try to pass off something to a customer that's just not authentic or genuine and that can happen with more than just trimming, you know, that can happen with coloring, you know, a Michael Jordan card that has a little chipping on the border. Some people try to get a little red marker and 
make it look red again, you know, and try to pass that off. And, you know, all these things are just not considered good in our community. They're not acceptable. So that's not something that we need to be out there doing, promoting or sharing, you know. And these it's really tough to pick out a trimmed card, too, just because like this is I'm we're talking like expert level trimming like this is this is like a millimeter trim to like a fraction of a millimeter. Yeah, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with a lot of it, but a lot one of the things and I don't I'm not going to get into the methods, of course, of how they're doing it. But a card, even a 1969 tops baseball card has a certain thickness to it. Right. And what people are doing is they're actually flattening it. They're, they're flattening it a little bit and then the edges pop out a little. So it's possible to trim that edge and make the card still the entire two and a half by three and a half hole. But you've still made those edges a lot cleaner. But the entire card is thinner. You know, it's been pancaked now. Wow. So that's still considered an alteration. So were the slabs like this, this Jordan card, was the slab a fake slab? They had recreated a slab with a, with a number that was authentic, obviously. And okay. Wow. Yeah, that, that was a hundred percent. And actually when Rick had called me to let me know that the Reggie Jackson was not authentic, he said, John, one of the things that we've been able to do with the slabs that we've targeted as fake is we can take our thumb and put our thumbnail in between the crack and the seal there and kind of rub that thumbnail right up there. And on a lot of the fakes, that case is cracking right open. Now, John, we tried that with the Reggie Jackson and it didn't work. Well, immediately in my brain, the first thing I thought of was, you know, oh my God, that Michael Jordan, you know, what am I going to do? I go up to the Michael Jordan, stick my thumb in the cracks, bloop, the whole thing popped right open. And when the Jordan came out of the slab, Literally, the card wasn't in my hand for two seconds, and I knew that it wasn't the same cardboard stock as a 1986 Fleer. Like, it was a completely fake card. So, John, I mean, what? So, what's going through your head at that moment, right? You, you say you buy this card, it's something you want to put away, it's, it's got a ton of sentimental, like, future value to it. Like, the moment that you realize that, oh, crap, this happened to me. And this card that I didn't even think it was, you know, fraudulent is fraudulent. Like what happens in that moment? I, a lot of panic, you know, I was down between the two cards about, and I mean, please understand I wasn't buying these prices. These was 2015. So I paid $2,000 for the Jordan nine and I paid like 3,600 for the uh, Reggie Jackson. So I was out $5,500 at that point, which was a real kick to the Johnny, you know, um, and we're just, what can you do at that point? I called the police. I made a police report and, you know, I was told there was a Denver police officer that was working on a case. So I got in touch with him and told him my story. And he's like, John, I'd love to help you. But unfortunately, when you were telling me my story, you went to this guy's house and his house is in Aurora. I'm a Denver police officer and Aurora is a suburb of Denver. So I can't go into Aurora and start an investigation. And I called the Aurora Police Department and they're like, sir, we have real crime that we're fighting. We're not out here chasing baseball cards. <laughs> so, you know, I was kind of just up shit creek for a long time until, you know, I started reaching out to other people who I'd heard this had happened to and then got in touch with the FBI. And, you know, I, I really wanted to do anything that I could to make sure that we try to get this guy, try to put this guy away because it doesn't doesn't make sense that he's out here just 
just ripping people up. I would be, I would not be shocked, but I believe that the general population would be absolutely floored to find out the amount of fake Michael Jordan PSA cards are in people's collections right now. I'd, I'd be willing to bet that it's probably 5% of all Jordans and PSAs are probably fake. I think I think a lot of the big auction houses at this point are aware of what's going on, so they're able to really detect what's going on. I don't think you're getting something like that by PWCC. I don't think you're getting something like that by Golden or Heritage. You know, but what these guys did was they would find power sellers on eBay with that don't have that type of following. And they'd be like, hey man, I got this Michael Jordan PSA card. You know, I, I'll trade it for, you know, a couple of the ones you've got and a couple hundred bucks. You know, so he would then get legitimate cards that were worth money and some money and just ship them shit. Yeah, that's that's it. It's absolutely a scum thing to do very clearly. And you've now seen yeah. FBI members twice. And this guy, this is 2015. So it's what, six years later now. And this guy's still out there, it sounds like, still selling fraudulent cards. Possibly. Um, you know, I'm not exactly sure where they were at in their investigation. And I will say that the lineup that I was shown, the, um, the photo that I identified as being likely the person that had scammed me and others around me, um, he was very disheveled. He looked as though he were... He had been booked at that point. So I don't know if they were just, I, I don't know where they are in their investigations. I don't know if they got the guy. They're just kind of solidifying their evidence or, you know, what. But if, he, if they haven't got him, I'd imagine they're real close at this point. How incredible is it uh, about the, like, what it, what it says about the longevity, <laughs> to turn this into a positive perspective? Um, about the longevity and growth of this hobby, if we're talking about a six-year FBI investigation over <laughs> basketball and baseball cards, I, it's it's crazy, right? That's it's ridiculous. To, to turn this yeah, a little, no, I, I mean, it's it's tough to hear, but this yeah. was one thing that I think came up early on in the Discord, or or Jesse and I may have had a podcast, and this was really initially kind of when we had first met you, John. You had, I think, you had messaged me on Twitter and first brought it up, and you had showed me the FBI reports, even I think of of kind of what had taken place just to sort of validate like, Hey, I'm, I'm not full of crap. This is what happened because we were talking about fraud in the industry and how it is prevalent. So for the people that are buying slabs on eBay, um, what are some things that they should look out for? Cause it's been a while since we've talked about this. I mean, what are some, cause you can't see the card personally, so you can't run your thumbnail down it. What are you looking for online? Um, the first thing I'm looking for is the name of the seller. Um, the, the, biz, the best thing you can do is buy from a trusted source. Um, as much as people don't, you, you know, you hear a lot of the chatter, oh, fuck PWCC, fuck Probstein, you know, I would buy from those guys slabs knowing that they're probably genuine and if they're not, they're going to do something about it. You know, if you buy a slab from, you know, little Timmy 14 with the 12 feedback and, you know, you got a good deal on it, but it shows up and there's nothing you can do. You got PayPal course, but like you don't really know. And what happens if you find out two months from now or three months from now or five months from now that it's a fake, you know, is little Timmy going to back it up? No. But if you go to Probstein or PWCC at that point, they're still going to back up their sale. They're still going to make sure that the people, if they were ripped off, they will be made whole. 
So the first thing I look for is the name of the seller and to see if they're trusted. Um, beyond that, you know, I use caution with the big things, with your Jordans, with your LeBrons coming up now. Um, if you're out there shopping for, you know, a Spud Webb rookie, I, I don't think you've really got a whole lot to worry about. You know, I, I don't think there's people out there that are, you know, faking Doug Williams rookies just to get something by you. You know, it's really, they're targeting people that are looking to save a lot of money and they're targeting people that are looking in the shadows. You know, they're not looking in the main places. So that that's my advice. Yeah, that's that's important because there is that's the one that's the one thing that can really hurt the growth of the community is suddenly this this infused conspiracy theory that there's all this fraudulent stuff being done out there. You can't trust buying from anybody. That's the kind of thing that keeps new buyers out of the market. But you two both very veteran buyers and sellers. I mean, you know where to look. Jesse, is there anything else that you would add sort of to what you would look for. Obviously, looking at the seller is incredibly important. I think just exposing yourself into at least seeing what these cards look like. Let, like, let's say you have a like, let's say your dream card is pretty much almost any grade, or at least a PSA seven of an '86 Fleer Michael Jordan. Just, just, I'm sure even if you look at old slabs, newer PSA slabs with with a with a PSA label and hologram you'll be it, you can just kind of tell if if a slab is being faked or if there's just something off on the label like i swear to god maybe yesterday or 2 days ago i i found um i found this one gold i can't remember which year it was i think it was a gold fine as tom brady and the bgs slab man it just it looks so off and just like john said honestly um, the uh, buying from a, from a reputable dealer or an auction house or whoever it's, it's, you, you might pay a little bit more, but it'll be worth it in the long run. Like, uh, Nate, we've been, we've been talking, uh, we've been talking about maybe some auction houses that have been experiencing shill bidding and, and maybe some cards that, that have, have gone up in value, maybe artificially. And then they're auctioned off the next week, just because of the amount of shill bidding. Um, maybe they've been mentioned on the show, but, um, the name of the auction houses, but honestly, the, I, like I, at this point, I can't even blame them for that just because of, of the, the story that John told us about Rick Probstein, like that guy actually cares. And when he, if he goes out of his way to tell you, listen, I, this is, this is very likely fake. Like he, he goes through that time. I can't imagine how many cards that guy goes through in a week. Like it, it, and if he, if he goes through, if he takes, if he really takes his time, making sure that a slab or a card is authentic um that really makes me trust those those sellers and those auction houses yeah i i can't agree more about rick i mean the fact that he was able to first of all identify the problem and was not willing to put his customers at it you know the the guy the, when i called um PSA to complain about this, the first thing they said to me is, well, maybe the auction house just didn't want to sell it. And I was like, wait a minute, you're trying to tell me an auction house isn't just going to want a free, you know, whatever their commission is, $500 for selling this card? Like, that that doesn't make any sense to me at all. It makes a lot more sense to me that he's trying to protect his brand than, you know, that he just doesn't want to make any money. So, and the only other thing I wanted to add to the, you know, if you're looking to buy something like a Gretzky or a, a Jordan, 
one thing that you can do to familiarize yourself with the card without actually having to spend a ton of money at first is pick up a small lot of other cards from the set because that'll actually give you you can put your hands on them. You can see little things on the cardboard that you can't really see on a picture on a slab, you know, on P on uh, eBay. So if you familiarize yourself with the rest of the set in those situations, that can do a lot of help when you're trying to buy. Man, John, I I I love it. This is this interview has been not only educational but. I, kind of mind blowing in a sense. I mean, from this fake slab controversy to what you've done in the community. I mean, I, I was told by Jesse, he told me before we ever did this interview, he's like, number one, he's like, you're going to love this guy. He's like, he, his quote to me was, I feel like I've already known him for years was the quote from Jesse. So obviously that's high regard. And uh, I mean, obviously you're incredibly positive, charismatic individual, um, and we definitely want to have you on this show in the future. Is there anything that we didn't get to tonight that you've got going on personally or anything like that or anything you want to plug before we, we get out of here tonight? Uh, no, guys, this has been a great interview. Thank you very much for the platform. Um, just two quick things. If you all want to hit me up, if you have any questions about this stuff, Find me on Instagram at kaboom underscore collector. Um, that's going to be the best way to get in touch with me. Um, I do my best to reach out to everybody who does reach out to me. So um, please feel free to do that. And uh, if you guys don't mind, I just want to do a quick shout out to my league. Strictly Business Boys, it's coming. Nikki, two years in a row, you're done this year. Norm, you suck. Strictly Business, we love this, guys. I love fantasy football, and to be on this platform has been an honor. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you all for everything. Yeah, man, absolutely. No, you were, you were a great interview. Again, we've done two others. Uh, I would be lying if I didn't say that this was possibly my favorite of the three so far. Um, you, you were absolutely great. And, I, again, I know Jesse spoke incredibly highly about you. So thanks again for coming on. Of course, guys. And if you all have any questions about anything, too, please, you all know where to find me. Absolutely. All right, John. Well, thanks again. All right, guys. We will be back next week on Clear the Cash. Clear the Cash.